Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in one, two, three. Ooh. Max trying to mess me oh, yeah, up there. Oh, yeah. gonna mess your flow up in Yeah, <laughs> welcome everybody. Welcome to the Mossy Oak Gamekeeper Podcast here in our humble studio. We're so excited that turkey season is on the horizon. Yeah, the sun was out yesterday, started warming up a little bit. So. Man, I hate to start thinking about it because that's like another, whatever, six weeks I won't yeah. be able to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, turkey season is here, y'all. I mean, yeah. yep. you just can't pull the trigger yet, but I mean, it's turkey season. A lot in my, in my mind. Yeah, close. me too. It's me close. too. They are strutting. Yeah, quite a few people sending in pictures of, look, I'm, I'm hearing a turkey gobble. I'm seeing some strutters. Seeing some strutting, no doubt about it. And as a guest today, we've got probably, I'm going to say our favorite biologist, our favorite doctor, our favorite turkey scientist, Dr. Michael Chamberlain. Here, here. All right. And do, you, I, do you buy all that, Mike? Or you think <laughs> no, not at all. I don't buy any. I, I didn't hear so, him say I that every time so. he has a biologist on there. <laughs> I thought I'd get a smile. Didn't even get a smile from him. I'm smiling. You just can't see it for the facial hair. Yeah. You know, he did that to me on one of the podcasts and said his favorite boss, and I was so enamored, and then I realized he only has one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Besides, <laughs> besides the one at home. Yeah, I right. got one at home, too. So. <clears throat> Well, so, uh, Mike, we always seem like we always have you around turkeys. We just, occasionally, we talk deer hunting with you and all that, but it's uh, this time of year has got to be really busy for you, as people probably are asking you a lot of questions, wanting you to make appearances, and how do you how are you dealing with it? How's it going this year? It's uh, like we were talking about off the air before we started. It's 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 crazy. This is a this is a crazy time of year for me, it, in in a lot of good ways. I mean, it's 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 humbling to to know that people want to talk to you and they want to hear what you have to say and they want they want you to attend events and and do whatever and but it is a grind i'd I'd be lying if i if i didn't say that my i was looking at my february calendar with my wife the other night and she she came into my office and at, at home and um she glanced over my shoulder and she was like what is that? I was like, that's my February calendar. And she goes, hmm. wow. Okay. I think there were three nights that I was, I was planning to be at home during the month of February. It's uh, it's crazy. Wow. Just trip after trip after trip. And you know, that's, that's good because conventions coming up yeah, and spreading the word. Yeah. And it, it's, um, uh, it's cool, man. I, I enjoy it. 
it's uh it gets me worn out before turkey season ever starts which kind of <laughs> sucks because yeah then you're then you're running on fumes before you start really running on fumes but but well, it's all good. Hopefully you've chiseled out a little bit of that time on that calendar to do some habitat work and go play in the woods a little bit by yourself for sure. Yeah, I try to, well, to that point, Dudley, my early March, actually my my March 1 to about March 20, believe it or not, is fairly open. And I okay. do that intentionally. Uh, that's I try to push my prescribed burns back uh, as late, you know, as I can without jumping into the nesting season, which here in my part of the world is peaks about April the 15th. And so I try to get those burns on the ground as close to the onset as I can without running into it. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that I'm not going to get pulled in every direction in, in early March and can get that drip torch in my hand and hopefully the weather cooperates as y'all know this this yeah. year has been a bizarre from a weather perspective oh gosh i hope the i hope the fire weather days hold out and, and we can actually get out there and do some work us too yeah yeah so how did your deer season go mike bobby it was it was interesting i i I would say it was probably the most hit and miss season I've ever had. And when it was hit, it was special. And when it was miss, I wondered what the hell I was doing sitting there, <laughs> why I had, had gotten up, why I had I had stayed up late, what I mean, it was it was just really odd. Both season was hot and miserable it as it was for Ooh. you guys and and we had a bumper acorn crop that's still laying on the ground and deer movement was really poor. Mm. And our rifle season opened and I, I started traveling a little bit and, and I killed a really nice deer early in the, in the gun season here. And then I'll be honest with you, I kind of lost my motivation. It, I didn't hunt a lot because I was really busy with work and my wife and I are renovating a house and, and so I just got stretched thin and, and when you're going and not seeing deer, it, it's easy to become <laughs> distracted with, with other things in life. But, um, but then we got to about mid December and I got, I got pretty mad at him again and ended up on a really, uh, just, a. you ever have one of those days where you just know you're going to kill something like you, you just know that you're going to kill an animal. I, I don't know if other people have those days, but I do. And I've had about six, I guess, through the years. Um, and I just, I just know that it's about to come together and it, it's hard to explain, but December, the, I think it was December, the, 16th or 17th it was one of those days mm -hmm. i uh i was at a client's property we were flipping through pictures and i said hey have you have you seen this deer and it was a, a big eight point with well, double kickers and on his twos and he said no we, ha we haven't seen that deer we he's still here we've gotten pictures of him but nobody's laid eyes on him and and so we piddle around the rest of the the early afternoon and go get in the stand. And when I climbed in the stand, I just, I knew it. I just knew it. 
um, I was sitting there. It was just, it was, you've, you've had these days. It's crystal clear, beautiful Northwest wind, ideal conditions. You get in the stand and five minutes later, deer are already moving. Like they're all around you. They're calm. They're, they're just hanging out. Nobody's, you know, nobody's chasing yet. The rut's not on. It's just, everybody's having a laid back day in the deer world. And those start piling out in every different direction. And I, so I, you know, I, I don't, I think most people probably know what a talisman is, but, you know, an object that, that you think represents spirituality or good luck. Well, I, my talisman is a, is a rifle sh- hull. Um, and it was the bullet that Austin shot his biggest buck with. And so I carry it in my pocket and, you know, and some days it just sits in the pocket. Um, some days I'll pull it out of the pocket. Some days I forget it's there. Well, this particular day, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm rubbing this talisman in my pocket. I'm like, man, it's, it's going to come together. It's going to come together. And like I said, deer were, they were everywhere. They just piled out everywhere. And I look to the right and there's that deer, the one that I had just asked the client about. There he is standing there broadside at 70 yards, just at four 45 in the afternoon, sunny, just broad daylight. Wow. And man, I thought for a second I had screwed up. I was, I had my binoculars. I was glassing a buck that had walked out in front of him. <laughs> And it was a, a four-year-old and really nice deer. And and I looked at him and I was like, man, that's, that's a pretty deer. And I dropped, you know, you, you, you bring the binoculars down from your eyes. And I was in a shooting house, elevated stand, and, and I had one of the window on that side up and he saw me. He, he was, I didn't know he was there and he was staring into the stand and he saw something but he didn't know what it was and it was me moving those binoculars down from my eyes so he and i got into a stare off for (laughs) what seemed like you know an hour but it was probably about 30 seconds (laughs) and i was i just kept saying to myself just just don't move mike just be calm he doesn't know what you are and i saw his tail flicker and he started calming down and he turned and walked off and when he turned and walked off, I put the binoculars down, got the rifle, put the rifle out the window because I knew he was coming back and because he was calm. He just, he just knew something was amiss. So he, I, I saw him, his feet, his legs walk off and he stood there for about five minutes. And that worked out well because I, I knew he was big and he was, and that let me kind of calm down and, you know, and get my wits about me. And, um, and sure enough, I, I saw that tail flickering and here he comes walking back and he was just as calm as a cucumber walks out and, you know, boom, rest is his, his history. And I get over there and, you know, it's, it's 152 inch eight point. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a that's, toad. That's, yeah. it's a, that's a, that's a good, a big, <laughs> big guy, you know, and, um, that's a big one to have short beams. I mean, he had 22 inch beams and still scored that. Wow. And it was because he was so massy and wow. it was just a, wow. So that was pretty much the end of my motivation. <laughs> I, uh, I started duck hunting a little more and went on some pheasant hunts and did this and that, but 
anyway, to your point, it, it was really hit and miss, but when it was a hit, it was, it was special. Y'all, do y'all ever get that feeling when you're in a, a, a stare off with a deer that if you keep looking into their eyes, they're going to, you know, see you blink. You no, know, I, I don't look them in the eye. I have, I I have to, I have to make myself not look at their eyes. It makes yeah. probably no difference. Who knows? But I, <laughs> I, I do not make eye contact. No, me neither. No. I look down. Everyone I have made eye contact. I don't know why. Off. I mean, it, it, yeah. And when you are making eye contact, <laughs> you you catch yourself starting to breathe harder, yeah. and then you start blinking your well, eyes. Well, the worst, and- the worst is turkeys because I'm, I'm, I know. I'm probably okay, but if I blink, and then I blink a lot, so then I'm about to die to blink, <laughs> and there's still one right there, and I can't, you know, it's tough. It, yeah, it is. That kind of gave me a little anxiety thinking about that stare down. <laughs> so, Michael, oh, it, what you, they just eat a hole right through you. Oh, yeah. Well, the difference you know is, I mean? yeah, deer, you can come out on top sometimes, but rarely does the stare no. down work with turkeys. It just doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. How, how what uh, on this client's property? What age class? But what are y'all trying to get your bucks to? Uh, most of them five or, or older. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it really just depends. This this property is in an exceptional area of of Louisiana, and it soil productivity is very high, and and the trophy potential is is off the charts. So we usually don't harvest four-year-olds there are some exceptions i mean we're 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 trying to manage a large piece of property with a a fairly high deer density so you know if you have four-year-olds and and this i'm i'm giving you a this scenario not you know it's this certainly doesn't apply to every everyone else's scenario but on this property you know you get a a four-year-old generic eight point that scores 110 inches um, you know, as Bronson has talked to you, to you about, I mean, he's already expressed a lot of his antler potential by that age. And if you have hunters, particularly young hunters that want to harvest bucks, you know, that's a prime candidate to harvest. Uh, why feed that animal for another year or two so that he can be 120 inches if you're, you know, if your objective is to grow the, the best quality animals that you can. So I say all that to, we don't harvest any bucks until they're at least four. And then we, we tend to, you know, we scrutinize them pretty heavily at four. And if they're, if they're bottom dwellers, if you will, I'll call them that, then we put them on a a hit list. And if there's a hunter that's there that has an interest in, in harvesting a deer of that quality, then go for it. And if there aren't, then he gets a pass until the next year and then his pass ends. <laughs> so, yeah. So that you would consider that a management buck that, that one, that scenario you just described. Yeah. I mean, just a, a, a deer that is not what you're, what you're seeking to produce. And my opinion is it doesn't make sense to feed that animal for a year. I mean, you've had, you've had, whether it's Bronson or Steve or other guests on that, you know, a buck consumes a lot of forage in a, in a year mm-hmm. and it doesn't make sense to me to, to feed that animal. If you know, um, based on the science that he's not going to be the animal that you're seeking to produce the following year. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, you, it, that deer is also taking up space that, that he might prevent a better deer from moving into that area. Well, yeah, he's occupying a home range and he's oh, also, I- you know, he's also, you know, he's interacting with other bucks. He's, 
he's competing for breeding opportunities. He's competing for resources. He's like you say, he's competing for space. Um, and that all of that matters in the, in the, in the deer world. Uh, for sure too. I saw Tom works for me, sent me a video this year of he heard two t- bucks fighting and he eased up there. It was in the middle of the day, in the middle of the rut. And the one ended up really whipping the other one was half his size rack wise. So what your point is just because, I mean, the dominant deer is not necessarily, probably not even normally the biggest set of horns. You know, this mm-hmm. deer was, one was probably a good 19, approaching 20 inches, very heavy, beautiful mainframe, like eight with a couple of kickers, just a stud. The other one was an eight, but he might have been 15 or 16 inches and just kind of tight, a little shorter points, a little heavy, both about the same body size. Maybe the, the smaller horns were a little bit bigger body size. But I was showing him, and then <clears throat> next thing you know, He's whipped that deer so bad, he's ch- running, chasing him off. And point well taken about that. I was just going to point out, you know, we've had information before and uh, on the Gamekeeper Show even about, you know, be careful thinking you can call your way into a better deer herd. And mm-hmm. research indicates mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's not a magic button. But what he's talking about is different than that. He's not saying that taking out – the a deer that's proved to be inferior is necessarily going to, you know, change your life in the future genetically. But he is saying probably more importantly, taking a strategic mouth off the place. Uh, Cause there's nothing like releasing more carrying capacity. Yeah. Nothing. In my yeah, opinion. That's a, cri- that's a critical <laughs> distinction because that's different to toxic point. You, you, you know, research has shown you're not going to shoot your way into genetically altering your herd. That's no. just not going to happen. You know, the way I look at it is solely from a resource standpoint based on the landowner's objectives. You know, this particular client, his objective is to, among many objectives, is to produce the highest quality deer herd he can, um, given the fact that, you know, this is a free ranging herd and obviously there's limitations, but his goal is to produce the best he can and he puts a lot of money and his own time into it. And if his objective is that it doesn't make a lot of sense from a, you know, from a resource perspective Mm -hmm. to, to let that deer we've described live another year when he's gotten to that age. Your daughter's been begging you to hunt since her little brother shot the big eight last year. You've ran a fire, dissed the fields, got stuck, got unstuck. Planted food plots, fertilized, and prayed for rain. You moved trees, limbed roads, even bought one of those fancy cell cameras. So what's your excuse? LS Tractor. Moultrie has pioneered the game management category. Today, Moultrie is one of the best-selling brands of feeders and seeders in the world, and they continue to innovate with new technology that gamekeepers will rely on. Moultrie products are always field-tested and designed for hunters by hunters, combining forward-thinking innovation with time-tested practicality. 
Moultrie, first in feeders since 1979. All right, so guys, Moultrie is offering our listeners a 15% site-wide discount at Moultriefeeders.com. Use code Mossy Oak with a capital M, Mossy Oak at MoultrieFeeders.com and get that 15% discount. I mean, we get tend to get a lot of just like he mentioned, like average one ten or whatever, eight points. And they may start to get heavy, but they never have any time length their whole life. You can identify that. I'm just saying it's a good practice to go ahead. If you want to kill some deer, kill that one. Yeah. I mean, let the let the let the four year old ten point go. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know that's tempting. Your big biggest best deer, but you know, if you're if you've got a group that all cooperate like he has and you want to shoot some deer, shoot that deer. I mean, that's yeah. a good one to shoot. Just don't expect miracles to happen because you call, you know? So, Mike, let me ask you one more deer question, then we'll we'll move on to some other topics. But, uh, on, like, on this property you're talking about, what would your – this buck that you killed, what would he have weighed pre-rut, and then what did he weigh when you killed him late season? And, and just can you talk about how much weight bucks on average lose during the rut process? Yeah, on this particular property, believe it or not, mid-December is pre-rut. The rut in that part of Louisiana is actually well into January. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are, in fact, I have a I have a client that's still hunting right now that texted me last night saying that he had, he had two mature bucks that were chasing a doe in front of him, um, you know, this late. So, so that, that particular buck, if I think was 245 i think is what he weighed um and that's pretty for and in this deer we we think based on our knowledge of this deer from the last two years because he he had distinct kickers on both of his g2s that he was he was a five-year-old and that's about two 240 to 260 is for that part of the world with intensive management that's about where our body weights end up for our mature bucks um that same buck would be 200 pounds 210 pounds say right now yeah uh and you can you can see it very clearly and that's a really good point from and i know we're we're going in the the deer world now but and that's fine i love talking about deer mm-hmm. that creates some real challenges if you're unfamiliar with who you're looking at as a hunter in other words if you're trying to identify bucks based on their their body kind of you know their their body you're trying to age the animal on the hoof and you don't know who you're looking at in other words a, a buck shows up out of nowhere you don't have pictures of him you have no knowledge of who he is and you see him a week after the rut he's not going to look like his age. Yeah. And that makes it really tough. Um, That's a great point. And what I have done in the past, you know, a lot of us start, we stop paying attention after the season ends, right? You know, we we run cameras and we run cameras and then we stop and we move on to something else. Kind of like what we're (laughs) doing today, talking about turkeys in, in the future. And, and I think that's a critical mistake. I, I, I like to run cameras w- well on after the season because I want to see what my mature bucks look like after everything's said and done with. And, and what you'll see is you, if you're, if you're careful and you really scrutinize your, your pictures of deer after the season, you can pick up cues 
you know, the loose chin around the loose skin around the chin, uh, the sagging skin around the belly and the, and the waist. And you can pick up cues that will tell you, man, that guy has, he's peeled some serious weight off in the, in the past, you know, six weeks. And that may help you for the following year. If that buck shows up out of nowhere that you've got an idea of, you know, maybe who he is, not just looking at his antlers, but, but looking at his body after, after the season ends. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I'm glad you made that because that's kind of one of the things that uh, we've been seeing as we start talking about older deer and recognizing them because they, they look so different in the summertime mm-hmm. and they do pre-rut, post-rut. And, that you know, even some of these younger deer, as the rut approaches, they just get all jacked mm-hmm. up and they all of a sudden they look uh, like a different animal, mm-hmm. so to speak. So Yeah, and I've seen this through the years. And, and I've actually, I've, I'm not going to say I taught people, but I have, I have mentored people that hunt with me through the years. There are some bucks, particularly ancient bucks, old, old bucks. They will look like a three-year-old until a month before the rut. But you, if you look at them, they'll have that pot belly like an old man. They'll have some loose skin around their face. Uh, they'll have the squinted eyes. They'll, they'll have those things that a really old buck has, but they wait until the last second to bulk up. And I've seen this really commonly in the deep south where it's warm leading up to the rut. It doesn't make ecological sense for a buck to bulk up too early. It just, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think as you get these older bucks that are experienced and they've been through a number of breeding seasons, they get cued into their clock. They know exactly when they need to start bulking up from a resource perspective. And and they look completely different, say, on, on an October preseason survey than they do, say, December 15th. Look like a completely different animal. And I see this a lot, particularly in that area where this particular property that we're talking about, where that property is, because it is so miserably hot until well into the season. I think a lot of those bucks just lay low and they, their clocks know there's no need in gaining a bunch of weight right now. You're not going to start burning that weight for another four weeks. So why gain it? Isn't that interesting how they how that works you know and there's even days like really cold days mike that you'll see one and if you hadn't been paying attention they're they're, they're almost they're like all they're fluffed, fluffed up, up. Yeah. and you'll yep. think oh my god look how big but it's Buzzy. just it's just his hair you'll see that with camera surveys too and that's another thing to really pay attention to is if you've got pictures of animals that are posturing for other deer that's that's something you have to you have to be aware of if there's other bucks around and they're just off camera that could change that, you know, the guy you're looking at that can change his posture and that can what change the way he looks and his mannerisms. And so I, you know, when I'm trying to do camera surveys for people and, and give them pictures of deer to help them identify them, I'm looking, I'm trying to avoid those, those pictures that you just mentioned mm-hmm. where they're, they're bristled up. They they're posturing because man, that's, those deer can make you make a mistake sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah you need a bunch you know. of pictures of that guy to. Well, I mean, we see one. old deer that are just even well before we see they're just so different, you know. 
but some will be so beefed up and so fat headed and so just like like you know just bulging around the eyes they're so fat and old and pot bellied and mm-hmm. some deer we know are old like he said will fool you you think they're just like a three-year-old body size the only thing i ever can see that confirms it for sure for me on that deer is a skin and you can tell me if i'm wrong when you see a super skin that skinnier back end and the bigger shoulders and you know he's getting way on up there mm-hmm. yeah yeah for me yeah, for sure but yeah some yeah. individuals could be could be three or they could be nine that's and right it's just hard to tell really, and some really some individuals right. it's just obvious you know yeah yeah, yeah. for sure so speaking of old man, we need to get, wish Toxie a happy birthday. He had recently <laughs> had a belated birthday. Right. I knew when he said old man where it was headed. I just didn't know about the birthday. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! All right, Mike, we're going to talk turkeys, but, but one more thing I wanted to ask you about. What is the latest on the foundation that you started? Yeah. Uh, wide open is, is kind of the latest on that. So I, I launched the, the Austin Hunter Chamberlain Memorial Foundation in May of last of last year, and I've been very deliberate, very very slow and methodical in what I've I've done with it. Toxie's one of the board members. Jason Hart with Mossy Oaks, one of the board members. Um, I've I've got you know a website launched and. And now we're just wide open. In fact, I've I've done some fundraising. I've 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 had some donors who were very generous that have that have donated enough money for me to really get the foundation up off the ground and do the things that that I want to do, which is which is kind of twofold. One is 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 pretty simple, and that's just provide seed monies for young people who are passionate about archery to to be able to to be mentored. Uh, by gifted archers who can who can teach them how to do it right put those young people in competitive situations where they can shine and where they can they can learn from from the industry and that's and there is as y'all know a a massive industry in the archery world Mm -hmm. uh and from a competitive standpoint and and austin was he cherished that he you know he, he traveled shot competition archery soaked it up and there's a lot of young people that that don't have the opportunity to do that because they can't financially uh, make it work and it it takes some money to travel to to these shoots and it takes money to to be to be educated by the best in the business and i want to make that happen for 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 young people who are already gifted they just lack the opportunity and Mm -hmm. so that that's that's one and we're actually I actually have a, a fundraiser going on right now at the Vegas Nationals where we've got a, a, a giveaway going where a company that Austin worked for, an archery company, Ultra, Ultra View Archery, they've got some tricked out uh, gear that they're that we're giving away. Um, folks are making donations and uh, in hopes of of getting drawn to 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 get you know some of these these items, whether it's scopes or releases hats that have the foundation logo on it's it's pretty cool we, it's uh gained a, a lot of attention thus far from from what i can see and so that's cool um the other thing i'm i'm doing which is really more more of the focus of the foundation is is identifying small cohorts of young people say you know 18 to 25 who are already passionate hunters and and fisher persons and 
they've been successful. They want to do it, but they are lacking the opportunity to, to be mentored in a way that can allow that passion to blossom, to get the stewardship side of it, to be, you know, to be able to, to kind of develop, not just as a hunter, but as a conservationist and land manager. So, um, so what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm identifying small groups of young, of young people. I'm immersing them in repeated experiences where the foundation will, will support them traveling with me and, and other board members and mentors to different places, uh, do some hunting, do some fishing, but more importantly, be around the people that are responsible for managing those properties, be around the science, uh, talk to people from a diverse background, set of backgrounds, and understand what it took to produce the quality of properties that that these young people will get to experience because that's what Austin did. Um, you know, he, he traveled with me, he saw places, he, more importantly, he met people from, you know, all kinds of backgrounds. He, he, he learned from people that had no formal education at all. All they did was drive a tractor and plant fields, but damn, they were good at it. And they took pride in it. They explained to him how to do it, you know, how not to do it. And, and, and he soaked it up. And then the next camp he would, you know, there's a neurosurgeon there. And I was like, wow, man, you, you, you get, you get paid to, you know, cut people's heads open. And yeah, but my true passion is hunting and land management. And here's, here's what I've done on my property. And here's the people that helped me do it. And young people are a sponge. And if you repeatedly put them in situations where they have mentorship and they can get science-based information that works. They can see it with their own eyes. They can experience it. They can see this is what it took to put those ducks in that impoundment. They will take that information and they will run with it. They'll take it back to their own home state. They'll take it back to their back 40. They'll talk to their friends about it. And I want young people to get that information directly from the science rather than relying on the internet. And so that's, that's where I've, I've started and I've got my first little small cohort, I think identified and, and I'll get, I'll get started with that later this year. These are not just born of the need in the world, but out of Austin's love and passions. So they're so true, true. But even though that's where it was born from, I'm on the outside looking in, talking to you about this, Doc. They are truly unique also. I've never heard of any, of anything going on to help, for lack of a better word, tell me if I'm wrong, underprivileged archery enthusiasts, especially the competition part of it, which, you know, can lead off, bleed off into, you know, school mm-hmm. competitions and, all, you know, young, young kids and everything. Sure. Uh, and then secondarily what he talked about. So I just want to say – um, it is from the purest of intentions and um, honoring um, someone incredible. But if you have a a bug in you to do something, uh, this is a great place, uh, maybe the best place I know of, uh, to donate. So I would like for you to say, I won't go on and on. I just want to know, people know, 
how pure and true. And also, quite honestly, the world knows when he puts his mind to something and then he runs something, it's going to be really, really done right and organized and to the nine. So I would be sure, please take a second and say where people could go to or send to to donate because I know there's someone listening right now that would love to aid the cause. Yeah, so if you so we launched a website for the foundation. It's austinsway.org. So it's just austins w a y .org. And if you go there, you you'll I mean you can read about Austin, you can read about his life, you can read about his passions, you can you know, you can obviously see how you can contribute to the foundation. Um, if you choose to do to do so, if, if you don't, and you just read about who he was, that's that's a win. Um, yeah, to to your point, Tox. I mean, another thing that I've I've seen that happens when you when you put young people in front of information that is coming from people that they 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 learn to trust over a couple of days. They they interact with somebody for a few days. And they establish a point of contact for information. They know that if they need to understand what's the best planning rate for this, I'm going to call Dudley. I have a cell number. I follow him on Instagram, whatever the case is. I know I can call this guy and I can get that information. If you do that enough with young people, you are providing them with an incredibly powerful tool. Because now they have these resources that they trust, that they have been mentored by, that they have befriended. And they, I see it with my own eyes. I saw it with, I, I see it with my daughter still. I saw it with Austin. They will constantly go back to those sources because they trust that person. And if I can put young people in front of, of other people that have science-based information that they will use that information repeatedly and they will disseminate that information to the people around them. And in so doing, they'll make the places that they spend time better environmentally. And this is how you make future leaders uh, with programs like this. Oh, unbelievably. So <clears throat> biggest need today in the world for younger people. Uh, and this isn't just about teaching them hunting and fishing. It's about, adding so much value to their life they could never get anywhere else because we're we're evangelists for that connection with the outdoors. But the problem is always access. Access to a place to go. Access for someone to take you. Access but what he's trying to do with this connection is you know, access for life to people that can add value, love and friendship in your life. It's so yes. it's so, yes. so, so much more meaningful than just take a kid hunting. And that's great. I mean, you know, those saying, you know, take your kid hunting, you know, never have to hunt for your kid. Well, it's honestly not quite that simple. That's a lot of truth to what we love, but what he's done is take it, like I said, to the nines, all the way to forming relationships for life. That is just incredible. Well, Mike, we're excited to hear about that. It's and uh, we, we, uh, gosh, but you know, it, it, this whole thing, it really touches us here and, and we've, we're just so impressed watching you and the and the the love of a father and what you've done to honor Austin is very very impressive. No doubt. Thank you. Thank the, you. The most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It really is. 
Nosler is known for their bullets, and now they're making suppressors. Nosler suppressors are made for hunting. Adding a Nosler suppressor to your rifle will make you a quieter, more accurate, and more effective hunter. Protect your hearing and disturb less game with a Nosler suppressor. The time to hunt quiet is now. Learn more at Nosler.com. All right, let's turn the page just a little bit. Let's do it. Let's get. Let's talk about turkeys. There's there's some recent research, uh, Mike, that you've been talking about on oh, on your turkey Tuesday. research people. Here we go again. But uh, you guys have got the largest, from my understanding, the the, the radio collar data set of of as you call them toms what's a tom we call them long beards but <laughs> gobblers and you're, you're helping influence some state agencies how they set seasons can you talk about some of this uh, this latest stuff please yeah so um so yes we we've been we've been putting radio packages on on gobblers we'll, we'll go there um, <laughs> politically for, correct yeah for for many years and we recently and i say we this was largely driven by patrick whiteman who who's was a, a phd student of mine he he also was a postdoctoral researcher in my lab he's now an assistant research scientist here at uga and he's he's a phenomenal uh person moreover but but exceptional scientist. So he took all of the data from all of the birds we've, we've marked and, and across a number of States, well over a thousand birds that we had data on. And he looked at uh, their survival and, and mortality rates and harvest rates. And, and yes, it is the largest known fate, meaning we know what happened to the bird because they were wearing a radio. It, it's the largest known fate data set that's that that's out there and and what his findings show very clearly which is interesting and and i'll back up a second so we have data on a bunch of hunted sites that are both private and public land and we also have a lot of data from a site that isn't exposed to hunting and when he evaluated the data he found that uh, not surprisingly you know survival of of, of toms is much lower when they're hunted about 54 55 percent per year meaning that about half you know slightly more than half are surviving each year um on the non-hunted side it, it was well over 80 percent um which is interesting obviously it's a lack of harvest if you looked at predation rates they were the same whether hunting was occurring or not, about 15% of your toms are being killed by predators that are not human predators each year, regardless of whether hunting occurs. Um, when he looked at harvest rates, meaning the percentage of, of toms you're killing every year, it was, it was right at 30%. It was 29%. And it didn't vary. This is interesting. It didn't vary from public to private lands. Hmm. It, it was pretty consistent. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that was a bit surprising to us because you kind of have this mindset that, man, they're getting hammered on public lands. They're getting hammered on public lands, but it really was pretty comparable from, from public to private. If you put all that together, predation's kind of the same. Uh, if they're not harvested, they live to the next year. What that tells you is that spring harvest is an is an additive form of mortality. And what that simply means is if you don't shoot them, they will be there next year. 
for the most part. And I posted about this, this, this yesterday and some of the, some of the comment, there's so many comments I, I haven't, I, I can't possibly respond to all of them, but, <laughs> but some of the comments are, are, I think are, are funny in the sense that people are like, what the hell? We already knew that's, that's common sense. Believe it or not, this, this has been debated in the Turkey world for decades that this, this subject of, if we don't shoot them, will they be there next year? Believe it or not, this has been hotly debated. And part of that is because back many decades ago, the mindset was that Tom's were all expendable. You just shoot them. I mean, they'll be there next year. There'll be, there'll be plenty of birds there next year. That mindset is still out there. There, I, I talk to people that have that mindset that, you know, if we can kill what's there, there'll be more next year. And what this data set pretty definitively shows is that that mindset is flawed, that, that if you don't shoot them, they're going to be there next year. And, and to Bobby's question about state agencies, I wouldn't say it's, it's, I'm using it to influence anything they do. I, I'm making it available to them. And, and I think what that speaks to is this notion and, and I got soundly criticized yesterday, which I don't care. That's fine. Um, about this. Well, state agencies, you know, instead of regulating us, they should be managing habitat and they should be doing this, that, and the other. And my response to that was, and is look, the bottom line is state agencies are, are trying to thread a needle. They are trying to maintain hunter satisfaction and to maintain hunter satisfaction, whether you agree with this or not is irrelevant. It's the realities of the life we live in. We want to hear turkeys gobble. That's it. We want to be able to hear birds gobble. That's what drives hunter satisfaction. So if you're an agency and you look at, at data that says, if we don't shoot them, they'll be there next year. Well, if they're there next year, they're going to be gobbling next year. So, and agencies have known that, I mean, they're, they have suspected this for years and, and that's why you're seeing some agencies make tweaks to their season regs, partially because there's a recognition that if we don't kill them, they're going to still be there. And if we could maybe carry a few more birds over from one year to the next, then maybe we could make hunter satisfaction more consistent through time. That's just whether you agree that an agency should do that or not, we can debate all day long. I get it. I totally understand. But that's just the reality of the needle they're trying to thread. And so, so yeah, I mean, this, the data set, to be honest with you, it's kind of intuitive to me, but it is very, a rigorous data set. And to be honest with you, there, there were a number of agency biologists and administrators who were waiting on us to get this published, uh, that they were aware of it. They knew we were doing the analysis. We've presented the data at, at meetings and conferences. They knew it was coming, and it's it's very difficult to argue with a data set that's that rigorous. Um, so, so question real quick, if I remember right. You also, as a, as a, there's another reason to heed this. 
If I remember right, one of the things we talked about, and you threw out an example, a guy called and he said, like, I've got like eight lamb beers on the place and I've, you know, got these jakes. Can I go ahead and kill like five or six of them or something like that? And you were like, he didn't get the point. So let's just take that example for and tell me. I don't know a better way to describe it. So if you, you have eight long beers on the place and you kill like six of them, or you have eight long beers on the place, you kill like two of them. In the second example where you only shoot two of them, aren't you more likely to have bigger, better nests and more pos- probably a better nesting success with that more, with d- more that we don't know for sure, but I will tell you this, um, that that's there's a lot to unpack in that question but we're not we're not sure that's why it's you not bobby welcome to our our Uh, world we're we're not really sure how how harvest rates and and what percentage of the toms we remove and when we remove them you know all of that matters so from the standpoint of disrupting breeding we've known for decades that how many you kill or what percentage you kill and when you kill them is what matters that um and there's a lot of complexities there that we're trying to understand and we're we're going to get there um we just don't we don't know there there's there have been studies there was a study back in the 1980s uh in Alabama actually showing that really intensive high harvest of toms early in the breeding season disrupted nesting to the point where it had a measurable impact on the population on that site. Um, what that means at a broad scale, you know, we don't fully understand, but I will tell you this in the absence of hunting population that we're monitoring is about 80% more productive than all of our hunted populations. That, that tells you a lot right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so- and, and I think, and, and people will listen to that and go, oh, damn it, Mike, you're advocating that we not hunt. No, calm no, down. No, I <laughs> no, think no, what, no, no. I think what the, the data from the non-hunted population, the re, what we're doing with that is we want a benchmark. And if you have a benchmark for this is what a population looks like when we're not tweaking it, right? When we're not harvesting animals. And here's what all of our populations look like that are being harvested. And here's the different scenarios that they're being harvested under. This scenario is a a season opening date of this with a bag limit of this. And if you study enough of that complexity through time, and as states are making these regulations changes that I'm not making these changes, I'm simply studying and, and not just me, there are others that are studying these populations as agencies are making these changes, then we can document what happens as that occurs. And we know what it looks like, what a productive turkey population in the absence of hunting looks like. We know what our hunted populations look like, and we know where we'd like to see our hunted populations be for them to be sustainable. Now, how do we get from the far left closer to the center, knowing that the far right being the unhunted population, we obviously don't, I mean, we don't want to go there, right? We want that sweet spot right in the middle where our bag limits are the most appropriate, our season opening dates are the most appropriate, our hunting pressure, whether it's, you know, the number of hunters that are on the landscape, 
the number of tags sold, whatever that is, we want, I want to provide data to the agency so that they can identify where that sweet spot is in their state. And there's a bunch of other researchers that are doing the same thing, whether it's in the Southeast or out in the Midwest or the Northeast, having the absence of hunting allows us to see what the far side to the right is. And then we can see where we currently stand on our other populations. And as agencies make these changes, we can see, are we heading towards a little closer to the middle or are we not? That's what a lot of, of studies that are ongoing now are focusing on. It's fascinating. I think that um, there are actually some, to me, some similarities in the early days of an awakening of understanding deer management in the days we're in today, especially with the, the intensity of research in the last years, you know, led by you and a lot of your, you know, counterparts. When we see our population dip, what's going on, what's going on, and we've studied it harder. So I'm just, for me, we are for everybody, but you still, I think, need to make a decision whether you have a place or even more importantly, a hunting club. I and, mean, you know, you talk about the state decisions, but more importantly, just like the gamekeeper practices, it needs to be all the way granular down to each individual piece of land. That's how it actually happens. That's right. So... What I think I hear you saying is people can make it a, just like, hey, if you've got a hunt club and you want to shoot every deer with horns, I don't judge that. I do not at all. I'm just saying you're going to get, if you if if that's what you want, then enjoy it. Uh, you know, be careful about what you might do to the place long term or whatever. Health-wise, maybe there's too many deer if you don't shoot your does and all, but I'm not judging that. I do not at all. But if you if you do that and you're wanting to shoot big deer, it's not going to really happen. Mm -hmm. So you just need mm -hmm. to make a decision. Am I just going to shoot deer or am I going to manage deer? And of course, more and more and more people. It's just about getting what you want. And all I'm saying, there's to me similarities with turkeys that we've learned that I've learned. So I'm saying this is that, do you want to shoot every turkey you can, or you want to have the most turkeys possible on your place? And with the technology today, with these cameras, especially cell cameras, you can, Actually, I think find out more meaningful information about the turkeys because you're not in there disturbing it all the time. If you have a place, and we have, for your example, eight long beards, and the group in my hunting club, we agree we got twenty long beards or forty long beards or two long beards, whatever. You know, if you can take the initiative to make a decision about what you're going to do instead of just do it haphazardly, I think you'll end up with a better place in the long term. Now, I'm not saying this in judgment of anybody and trying to tell anybody what to do other than maybe help them have more fun with their place long-term. That's yeah. all I mean. Make a decision maybe by listening to people like Dr. Mike and all the information out there and do. And I think it's kind of fun to make a decision. And then especially when you start seeing the results, what I have learned is like putting less pressure on them, not killing so many has definitely helped the amount of goblin and that's on not just me but other people that i'm very close to aware of and i don't know we've been having better nest success in the last couple of years consecutively in all the places we have harvested less and left less now do i know that no for sure caused it could just be the times we're in and the weather conditions and whatever but i guess and I'll end that. He's the one with all yeah, the best and information. I, and I, but just, I, just make a decision about what you want. 
and the information's out there to get you there. You know, some something that came out that hit my mind while you were talking, Toxie, is, and I got asked this yesterday on one of my social accounts, and I I, I don't remember. It was a very, it, it was a very cordial, um, comment and request. But basically, this this person, uh, said, you know, are are you saying? He basically was implying that, you know, these data are kind of loaded in that um, almost as if the hunter's being, you know, the finger's being pointed at the hunter. And I could not disagree anymore. Me too. Um, What, and I'm not just, this is not me. This is us. There's a lot of us that are trying to provide agencies with appropriate information, whether it's about harvest, whether it's about land management, fire, whatever. Um, But my response that I wanted to clarify for this uh, young man, I believe, was that, you know, the bottom line is um, it's incumbent on agencies to make regulations that are biologically appropriate. That's not, it's not on us to police each other. Although, in Tatoxi's point, it's not on us to judge each other. No, it's just be, not, be a good example. It, be a good example. Yeah, That's all you got to do. What it is, it's incumbent on people like me to provide information that decision makers can use to make regulations that are biologically sound. Do they always do that? No, absolutely not. But if I, if I and others provide information that they can use, then it's incumbent on them as the agencies to make regulations that are sustainable and make sense. It's on us to work collectively as turkey hunters to make sure that we can do whatever we can to positively influence the landscape from this bird's perspective, whether it be sound harvest management, whether it be land management, whether it be trapping or plant whatever it is what and we talked about this on on this podcast before do what you can to make an impact and let the states do their job which is to create regulations that that make sense um and you know we, we i got i got soundly chastised yesterday about well it you know the agencies you know are at fault here the agencies are are trying to regulate harvest while not worrying about land management or anything else come on i mean let's let's be realistic if you if you don't know the Mm. challenges that a state agency faces whether starting all the way from the legislative process to the political process to the funding mechanisms that that run the engine that that is these agencies to the personnel that they have, to the lack of man and woman power, on and on and on. If you're not familiar with those challenges, you should be. You should you should make an appointment and talk with your local biologist and and just listen to what they're what they're trying to accomplish with very under very challenging circumstances. It it's it's not the agency's job to do to do everything. It's it's our job. It's our job as gamekeepers and stewards and managers to do everything we can, yes. whether it's one acre or a thousand acres or whatever it is. Amen. It's, it's, yeah, it's going to fall on us. That mm-hmm. number. You know-
that number study is is one hole in a bucket, and there's there's several holes in a bucket oh, you know, cool. in this turkey bucket. You know, uh, moving the needle to that sweet spot. You know, maybe we do need to self limit a little bit. Uh, um, I'm probably not going to use the hashtag tagged out this year. I I, I rarely do, uh, but. I'm going to also do a bunch of habitat work and try to improve my habitat. And so, you know, if we decide to limit our numbers at the hunting camp or whatever, that's great. But uh, we can move that sweet spot over even further by plugging more holes in the bucket. You know, there's no one answer. The Furminator is the industry's most versatile piece of food plot equipment, allowing plotters to do every step of the process, working the soil, adding seed and soil supplements, and compacting. From start to finish, with a single implement, it's hassle-free by design. Set it for the seed size and simply drive the tractor, and the Furminator does the rest. Check it out at theferminator.com. Hey guys, Dudley from Gamekeepers here. I want to tell you about the all-new Gunner Dog Bowl. It's designed for home and built for travel. It's customizable, leak-resistant, light on weight, solid on durability, and rust-proof. Like other Gunner products, they're made in Nashville and designed for everywhere. You know, Arkansas's turkey population has plummeted from historic highs. Uh, the former Turkey coordinator in Arkansas, who has recently left for another position, you know, Arkansas makes changes to their regulations. a number, you know, several years ago, they, they shift the season date back a little bit later to, to where the science says it should be to be as conservative as possible. They change their bag limits. They, they limit the harvest of Jake's at the same time, they create a, a Turkey stamp that provides a funding mechanism for the agency to turn around and put money back into improved management on public lands. They are impacting hundreds and thousands of acres using that program. And as you, as I would expect the last few years, they seem We'll see if this, the data holds true over the next say four or five years, but their production has has trended up slightly each year. Their harvest has trended up slightly each year. And all, are they out of the woods? Absolutely not. But are they heading in what appears to be the right direction? Yes, it does appear that they are. If if that's the sweet spot, then maybe they've identified it. And, and that's what we're trying to get to. Can we make changes that that push us towards sustainability at the levels at which we want them to be that maintain our satisfaction. Can we do that? And if we can, how do we get there? That that's what we're trying to establish now in a bunch of states, man, if you, and I'm going to talk about this at the convention, if you look at Turkey research right now, there's more Turkey research going on now than any time in my career. There are there are studies in states I've never, to my knowledge, there there hasn't been turkey research in some of these states in thirty or forty, fifty years, and that that tells me one, there's a recognized problem, and two, it tells me that there are agencies and people who are in decision making roles who see the problem and they're willing to put resources towards addressing it, and that. 
that gives me hope that we're heading out of the we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, it does. Mac, you look like you got a question. Dr. Mike, how are you, sir? Good, Mac. How about you? Doing good. So with February approaching, I know a lot of people are going to want to get an idea of their turkey numbers on their property. And one way very easily you can maintain a good turkey population is not killing them all, obviously. So what are some what are some quick tips as far as camera surveys, what numbers you feel comfortable with harvesting? What was I mean, that's an easy, non-expensive way to manage your turkeys by not shooting too many. What what do you think people should be doing in February right now to get that idea and and, and find that number or roundabout number? That is a really tricky question. And he, and here's why in some ways i have determined and i don't i'm not going to surprise anybody by saying this bobby's running cameras on his place and he has five toms on camera uh laney's got some cameras running on his property next door he's got some toms on camera are they going to go talk to each other and, and determine Lanny and I are not no, 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 Bobby and I will not be speaking. Uh, <laughs> I would say tur- tur- turkey hunters in general will be the worst at sharing information. One hundred thousand percent. Yeah, and that I creates would, a real That is not challenge. anecdotal. <laughs> That's a scientific yeah, hey, fact. Guilty. <laughs> Toxie doesn't even talk to us <laughs> yeah. from I'm sorry? the beginning huh? of March. Bobby, <laughs> Bobby can, what, speak up. I can hear He's you. He's getting ready to disappear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Mac, that's 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 a tough question. I, you know, if you're just looking at your property, which is a, is a critical mistake unless you own a, a, a very large track, you know, Toms are maintaining home ranges in the spring of well over a thousand up to two or three thousand acres. And they're moving about those ranges in what we've now determined is fairly, it, it's not, I'm not going to say predictable, but once you map out how they do it, it, it it is somewhat predictable. They they have areas that they are are moving to and from on a fairly consistent basis. They have places they roost. They have places that they forage. They have places that they're looking for hens, and they they keep revisiting those places. So they can literally show up on your property for two days and then disappear. You get pictures of them. Well, they are on your neighbors for the the next two weeks, and then suddenly they're back on you for for a couple of days. That creates some real challenges when it comes to understanding your quote, you know, quote unquote, your birds. Uh, unless you're owning large tracks, you don't own any birds. You're sharing all of them with your neighbors, and yeah, and that, you know, as far as what percentage to shoot, man, it all depends on how many you're producing. You know, if you're if you're producing a lot of birds in your neighborhood and you're seeing a lot of jakes and and then obviously your harvest rate could be a little bit higher than than if you're not but you know we've always we've we've kind of always hung our hats on on you know 30% being sustainable and that's the rate that we saw with this recent data that we're talking about you know 29% but I'll tell you that the recommendations to limit harvest to 30% we're predicated on production that's twice as high as what we see across the South right now. Right. Meaning 30% is not sustainable with the production that we see. So, I mean, it uh, would be meaningful to at least 
I know it's short term and in the moment, but if you have no Jakes versus lots of Jakes, it could help a little bit with that. But I mean, sure, yeah, to I me, mean, it, it's just, a it's a game time decision each year. I yeah, you need to you need to. <clears throat> To the best of your ability, I mean, mm-hmm. try to understand your your local flocks. So, this is a really good point. I'm glad you said that, Toxic, because somebody messaged me um, on Instagram this morning, actually, and don't tell my wife, but I was checking my phone while I was driving, and um, <laughs> and and he asked a really good question. This this young man lives in California, and he asked a really good question. He's like, "When should I start scouting for turkeys?" And I was like, "Last week." Mm-hmm. You know, get out there right now when they're still in their winter flocks and understand what you're dealing with if you can, it, because those winter flocks of of toms are going to be near hens right now, even if they're not associating with them. A lot of times they are. Um, get out there and see how many toms are in that in that winter flock, because that winter flock is about to become the breeding population in your in your area. That big flock of say ten is going to split up into three groups. Let's say. That's the 10 toms that are in your neighborhood. That's it. That's the only 10 that are there. So if you can find them in their winter flocks now, before they start splitting up, you can get a pretty good sense for what you're dealing with. And then if you can figure out, you know, how many of them came to your property, well, then you, you know where the rest of them are. They're somewhere, they're within a couple miles of that, that location. They're just on a neighbor. Kill. This is a great time to start trying to figure out how many are out there. Do you have a follow-up, Mike? I do. So it seems like to me, at least in our little focal area in northeast Mississippi, for the last two years, everybody seems to be talking like, hey, I had a good hatch. Hey, I had a good hatch. I've got a lot of turkeys on camera. Is there anything that, I mean, is it weather that's played that factor in the last couple of years? Is it people are running more cameras and just paying more attention to it? Or what do you think that could be? Because it seems like the last two years, everybody's seeing more turkeys. Well, to s- the data across a lot of our study sites doesn't doesn't bear that out. And, and I'm I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that that we, with a few exceptions, we haven't seen any appreciable difference in our data set the last few years. But with my own eyes, I agree with you. I've, I've seen like the, the, the property near my house here in Georgia, I have seen a difference the past few years. Um, I, we, we know that there are these fluctuations through time. In fact, many years ago, you know, George Hurst would, would, would say you only need one good hatch every five years. You need one good bumper hatch every five years. And and if you got that, you can make it work. But boy, if you could get two in a row, mm. you're in the money. Uh, he used to say that all the time. And at the local, you know, scale, I, to Mac, I, I think it can, it can range any, anything from, um, the, the onset of nest initiation was more consistent that particular year what makes that more consistent is hens coming out of the winter in better condition. So if you had a good mass crop in the fall, you had a, a not a very severe winter. You had green up that maybe was just a touch earlier talking days here. You, you could have had hens come out of, 
of winter in better condition, literally being six ounces heavier than they were the previous year, that matters. Um, they would have then been expected to be more synchronized. And when they started nesting, that would create predation rates that were lower in that area. And you would expect to see better nest success. You would then expect to see better brood survival because you would have more broods on the ground a couple weeks earlier. And those broods would have higher survival. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that, those, those things that we don't really think about, we, we think about, well, weather or, uh, you know, we, we did some burning this, this year that we didn't do the previous year. You know, you got to think those flocks that you're seeing are, are being affected by a myriad of factors on, on your property and around your property. Think bigger, think the population, you know, kind of perspective. And to me, it starts with the fall. You know, how are these birds coming out of, of the fall and winter? And if they all, if they're, if they're in good condition, then most of them are going to be in good condition and things translate from there. They kind of trickle down from, from what happens in fall and winter. Makes a ton of mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, Hey, you catch a couple weeks of good weather, like, you know, peak, peak and in nest incubation, uh, you know, in your part of the world's the same as it is here. It's about mid April. So man, you, you get a bunch of birds on the on the ground, and once turkeys start incubating, they are weather resistant. When she's sitting on the nest, she can tolerate miserable conditions and make it work. Wow. What she what 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 really screws us is if she's laying and we get really, really bad weather, or more importantly, if she starts hatching. And we start getting these monsoon rains right. and these, you know, three days of rains and, and lows in the forties and fifties. That's what kills us, man. You, you get a bunch of hens nesting at the same time and they get to hatching and we catch about a week and a half of good weather that yep. in your little area that can make a difference mm -hmm. versus say, you know, 10 counties to the South of you caught a, a really heavy couple of thunderstorms or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, there, there you go. And, and so you see these, these pockets that do quite well and, you, and then 10 counties away, you know, your neighbors down there are going, man, we, man, this, this hatch sucked. And that's what I've seen the last few years, some really good signs that local populations did quite well. And then others that, that didn't, and, and that's the way it's functioned forever. Our goal needs to be, I think that. We need those pockets, which I've talked about on these podcasts before, that these light bulbs, these areas that are bright spots, we need more of them. Mm -hmm. And if we can work our butts off and we can get those bright spots to be brighter and we can produce more of them, then the picture is going to get brighter every year. Yeah. We're going to have some years that are just bad, whether we, regardless of what we do, but if we keep working diligently, those bright spots will, will win out. So a little, one little skew I'll put in there, and this is, again, this is just, subjective but a much larger percentage of the people you talk to mac or that we come in contact with here are going to be people who are gamekeepers and taking matters in their own hands and have likely been doing it for years at least started now same with doc you know one of the leading the leading whatever biologists and the people that talk to him by and large a higher percentage are people who have 
cared about it or looking for advice or taking matters in their own hands. So if it's what you heard or saw and what we heard or saw, it's likely people that have been taking matters in their own hands more than just an average place left its own devices. And so I I just noticed the ones that I know are really working at it are just about all having better success in the last years. Not to say it's going to always be that way because Mother Nature is the trump card of all. But it sure seems like it has mattered mm-hmm. a lot, actually. So, so yeah, Mike, for, sure. you, for for the years we've been doing this podcast and we've had you as a guest, you've talked about a place in Georgia and you've babied it. There weren't many turkeys there. You were doing your best to try to encourage some. And prior to turning the mics on, you mentioned, hey, I got – the first time I got five or six birds, right. and you held them this winter. I wanted to ask, what do you th- what do you think contributed? What are some of the factors that you feel strongly about contributed to holding those birds this winter? A uh, couple things. One is we we now we now have a neighbor that that is improving the management on his his property, and his property is three times the size of of what I have access to. That's one. Um, we had some land ownership changes in the neighborhood that, that went from, you know, some leaseholders that, that have put quite a bit of pressure on the, on the population or, you know, are are no longer hunting those, those tracks. And to be honest with you, we've busted our tails for, for years. Uh, you know, I, I burn, um, I have a two year fire return interval, which is a, which is spot on for this part of Georgia, meaning every, every two years, you know, I'm, I'm entering these stands and I'm, I'm, I'm repeatedly burning them. Like we talked about before we started, I'm, I'm pushing that into March if I can, which I do every year. I, I, I don't do winter burns. I'm trying to time my fires where I can get, uh, produce, you know, herbaceous plant communities. We've done some fires at different times of the year we've done mulching. We, we, I mean, food plots, we've just worked really hard and, and there hasn't been a Turkey killed on that property in a decade. And like I told you before we started taping, part of it was that there were no birds there. And part of it was that I, I, I couldn't justify hunting knowing that there was one Tom you know, that's the only bird on the property or there were two and I'm not going to go kill one of those knowing that my neighbors seeing the same too. Um, so I, I just think you've seen a collective effort of a lot of things go right. And, and like I told you before, you know, before we started taping, you know, those birds have been on that property all fall. In fact, one of the best deer hunts I had, in fact, it, it probably was outside of killing that, that particular eight point we discussed. I had these, I had a group of toms that's still there now under me all day, bow hunting. And it was, I always, I joke with Tess Jolly, you know, Tess gets to watch birds and she sees things that are so cool. And she takes the most beautiful pictures of turkeys and she just, she has such a passion for it. And I'm so envious of her because (laughs) she gets to see these things that I, I have to see it through her lens, you know, and I'm, I'm jealous of that. And I've told her, but that day I felt like Tess Jolly 22 foot up in a tree. I was, (laughs) I was watching those birds and I was listening to them and, 
I remember thinking, in fact, I texted my wife and I said, you're not going to believe this. There's five times under me. And of course she was watching Georgia football game. She didn't give a damn about my <laughs> bow hunt. And, and she was like, nice. That's all she says. I'm like, no, you don't, you don't get it. There's five toms. And I remember putting in all caps toms under me. They've been here for an hour. I've watched them feed all the way down the field and come back and they're still under me. And one of them has got a set of daggers. You would not believe cool. <laughs> nice honey. Yeah. So I was like, what's the score? And she, you know, Georgia was throttling whoever they were playing. And I was like, okay, so I'll, I'll see you after dark. And, and they've, and that was in October. That was the first week of October and they're still there. And it's so exciting. It's just, it's so exciting. When I downloaded pics the other day from, from our protein feeders that, um, and they were there, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I, I don't run cameras during the season, uh, for various reasons because, uh, one, it just occupies too much of my time and mental space. And I, I'd, so I just stop running cameras during hunting season. I just move on and I trust what I have before, but I had seen some scratching. I had seen some tracks, but uh, I haven't hunted a lot this year, which we talked about earlier too. And, and to see them, those jokers on camera the other day, I, I, I was so happy Sunday when I looked at those cards, I just, I was beaming. I, you couldn't have dropped me down no matter what you had told me that day. I was just like, I have got the same group there for the first time in a decade. I've got them there. Now, damn it, they better not leave. But <laughs> I'm yeah. considering going and hunting and, and trying to either me or the landowner try to kill one of those birds. And that will be, a, if it can happen, will be a truly momentous occasion because it's been so long coming. Yeah, that's great to hear that come back. Is it fair for me to ask how big a place this is so we can kind of have a little perspective? It's just under 600 acres. Yeah. So uh, – Taking one bird yeah. off six hundred. Did y'all hear that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had well, a, and one is it one to five? Pre- predicated thinking, on the numbers. Is that how what you're yeah. making your decision on one to five? Well, that I mean, in this case, that you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I do, mm. unlike other turkey hunters, like we've talked about, you know, we may not communicate with each other very well. I do know because I have worked with one of the adjacent landowners that owns a, a large piece. I do know from conversations with him that he has pictures of other, you know, of, of a different, of different Toms that nice. not, that are not, he has, he, he, he is seeing these same five, of course, but he's seeing a few more elsewhere. So I, I feel a little better about knowing that, okay, if I go in and, and pluck one of these five out, that's a 20% harvest rate. Um, given the fact that, that we haven't, and I haven't, I have not seen any, I've seen two Jake's, uh, all fall, but he has seen a few that gives me solace that that's, that, that makes sense to me. I go in and take one of those out. He's going to take a couple off his property and we've got some Jake's that are coming up that, that will be there. So I feel pretty good about it. I'm going to throw my sports analogy in there, listening to all this. So, you know, and I'm getting old, and uh, you got only so many seasons left, you know. And I've been through a lot of losing seasons. And, you know, people may not think that, but I have. And I'm thinking about different properties or places or 
where I leased it, or we had. Are we a club talking about turkey hunting, or we talking, talking about Mississippi State? We're talking <laughs> both. Georgia, yeah, Georgia football made me think of it because Georgia football hadn't been on top always either. But I'm just saying the best way to win the games or have a winning season and not have a bad season when you don't have them to throw away the rest of your life is build a lead and then maintain that lead. Don't flirt with, you know, getting back to behind again. And so in his property is a good example of that. It's like he has had a losing season there for I don't know how many years, you never said, but quite some time. And now he's finally kind of starting to get a lead. He's going to make sure everything in his power, including if I have to back down or not shoot anything or not shoot much, I'm going to maintain my lead for life if I can. And that's the best way to have a winning season. So think mm-hmm. of it that way. Do you want to listen and learn from everybody? I cannot learn too much. I mean, as much as I've heard and been around in my life, I am learning so much all the today just listening to him. I want to build a lead and maintain it. I don't want to flirt around with having to go through a year of my life and not having turkeys gobbling to hunt and stuff. That's a good announcement. So mm-hmm. build, yeah, build a lead and maintain. No, build when you finally yeah. – especially it helps you appreciate it more when you've had tough times, when you've oh, had gonna, subpar like, teams. Once you get a lead, I mean, do whatever it takes to maintain it, including now we've learned from him. Take a look at your numbers to the best of your ability and try to figure out and have a plan. It's not – nobody's fooled me perfect. But do that to the best of your ability. It's one more thing to help you build the lead and maintain it. Dudley, we've been talking. You've been quiet. You've been listening. You got a comment here, or a question? No, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I think this is contagious, and uh, we're. You know, we may take one or two less birds off our place a year, uh, but we're we're also implementing that with a lot of fun habitat work. You know. Yes. And so you can combine all that and and have a really fun year if you kill two instead of three. You know. Um, and Mike was mentioning all this on. 600 acres. I, I thought he was talking about being on, on 120 or something, but, uh, you know, I, I was uh, duck hunting with somebody in Arkansas the other day, and he mentioned that uh, his family's turkey hunting area is about 3,000 acres, and, and they decided to take two off of it this year. Um, mm. And they're up in their fire game. They're killing fescue, you know, things like that. Um, but the good news is, is Maybe in five or six years, they'll be able to take seven or eight off of it in a year. Um, exactly. So exactly. You just kind of yeah. have to look in the future and try to plug all the holes in the bucket, not not just one. You know, you're not going to do it with just trapping. You're not going to do it with no. just feed or just whatever. You know, you you need to try to combine all these elements. So, Mike, when you you mentioned uh, some of these harvest success rates on public and private being pretty close to each other and when you guys sit down and analyze this data do y'all take into consideration that there's a lot of guys that probably aren't telling you the truth well with and that's the that's the power of telemetry data that that's the power of of having radio marked birds it's it's called a known fate analysis and it versus say banding birds where the only way you know if the bird was was harvested is if the ban was reported. Um, the known fate data, the telemetry data, are extremely powerful. If those birds die, we know it. So 
that that's how we get around that reporting bias that that that's what you're that's what you're asking is reporting bias and so we get around that with the with the telemetry data yeah so uh, if you if you're a hunter and you see a bird that's got and you he's got bands and he's got maybe a little antenna sticking up and you recognize that do you want a guy to shoot that bird or would you prefer him to leave that bird alone if he can see it i've always I've always said the same thing. Do what you were going to do before you knew the animal was marked. If it's a deer wearing a radio collar and you wanted to shoot a doe that day, shoot her. If it's a turkey and you realize it's banned, you know, that it's marked and you were going to kill that bird 10 steps before it got right there, kill it. Um, and the reason for that is simple. If, if we, if we advocate for protecting our, our research animals, then we get biased data and we don't want that. We want rigorous sound data that is as free of bias as possible. Understanding that no data set is, is completely free of bias. So yeah, if, uh, and I get this question. In fact, it, this is a funny, this is a funny, I've had hunters that have shot GPS mark toms and didn't even know the bird had a unit on its back. Uh, we, we had a hunter a few years ago that actually cleaned the bird Just and discarded the, the carcass. I cut the breast out and didn't, didn't inspect didn't, the didn't rest even of the know, bird at all. Didn't know, didn't look at the back to see, I mean, and I, to his credit, he reported the bands. Of course he kept the legs. He reported the bands to us, said I shot, you know, band number, whatever it was. And we were like, well, where's the GPS unit? And he was like, there wasn't any GPS unit. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we just, we just tracked that bird two days ago and, and come to find out it was, it was on his back, but, um, he didn't know it was there. And the reason for that is simple. We go to, you know, we use these, they're, they're very small and they're colored dark. So. And what, what turkeys do with these units, not always, but most of them will preen themselves and they'll kind of, they'll kind of integrate this radio into their feathers. They'll, they'll preen around it and they'll fluff feathers up around it and they'll get it to where it, it, it's comfortable on, and they, it's, it can be hard to see. Um, but to your point, Bobby, we want, we want hunters to treat those birds like any other bird. Yeah. Otherwise we get, we get, we get flawed data. So I've always thought, Mike, that like the, in the, the, the goose world, when they put those colored bands on a goose's neck or a swan's neck, that it made hunters really go after those particular birds. And could that, could that produce flawed data as well? Yes. Yeah. And there, that, that is, that's a known bias in, in that world that, you know, you have, I'm not even going to call that person a hunter that would target marked birds to secure the mark or the band in this case, the neck band or the leg band or whatever it is. That's, that's not hunting to me. That's, you know, that's targeted assassination right there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and you can tell that our birds are marked when they, when they get up to you, if they're really close, you can see the leg bands, you can see the GPS unit on their back. But most of the time, uh, what the hunters tell us is they had, uh, they had no idea mm-hmm. that until they got over to the bird that it had either mark on it. 
you know, back in the day, in fact, when I was at Mississippi State and I was trapping turkeys, we used to put these wing tags on on the toms, these colored like cattle ear tags. You would just punch it through the skin on the upper part of their wing. And mm-hmm. so when you saw them, you could you knew there's red number eight or whatever. I, I suspect that there was some bias in those in those data sets. I can't, obviously I can't prove it. I didn't, I wasn't responsible for analyzing those data, but yeah, when you have those colored tags like that, it's tough to, it's tough to navigate the the potential bias. Wow. Lanny, have you ever seen a banded turkey? I have not. I think I have either. Taxi, have you ever seen one? I don't think so. Uh, I've seen one harvested somewhere. Or seen one, someone got mounted. It was, but it was a long time. So, like you're talking about forty plus years ago. Do they glue that unit? Glue that unit on their back? Is that how you do it? No, we put a, uh, we put a like a grommet almost. These these harnesses that basically like a backpack. It's got uh, but like parachute cord. Okay. That that we kind of tie the unit under their wings, and then the unit sits between their wings on their back. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of give there. So when the bird moves, mm-hmm. the unit's not static. It's not sitting you. there. So um, like 40 or 50 years ago, when and it was longer than that, when Daddy had them brought in and released, we didn't have any turkeys here and all that story. They had the these, prequel. Yeah, there was these wing bands, but it's almost like a metal grommet went yep. through there. Isn't that right? Yeah, because yeah, I yeah. remember they found uh, one of those hens, was 10 hens, one of them they found dead that something caught. And so they brought the wingman hmm. out. And I remember yeah. seeing that metal with a tag. It just on clipped it. through the front of their wing. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Funny story. There's, so I mentioned this at, at, at some point today. I know I've mentioned this, but my wife and I are, we're renovating the house that we're living in, which is a, <laughs> don't even get me started but um what a what a what a nightmare but anyway so we're at the final stages and i'm gonna knock on wood i hope i didn't just jinx myself but we're in the final stages of of this we can see the light at the end of the tunnel and there's an electrician that comes in and he's a very polite young man and i'm old so anybody you know that's under 40 is considered a young man but um he he doesn't ask anything about like, you know, who we are. Obviously he's just, he's a, he's a guy that's performing a service for us, super polite, super cordial. And of course he sees, you know, mounts in, in the house. There aren't many, uh, in the living area anymore. They're all in my office. And so he actually sees, um, I leave and to go on a, on a business trip a couple of days ago. And, I had uh, some hats on the the island of our kitchen, and the hats are were created by Ultraview Archery, and they have the the foundation's logo, Austin's foundation logo on the on the hat, and they're they're giving some of these hats away this week in in Vegas, and he saw the hat, and my wife was wearing one of the hats, and he just asked about it, so she started telling him about Austin and, and you know his his hunting passion and so they struck up a conversation and 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 my wife's very conversational and very very personable unlike me sometimes and she she can have a conversation with anybody and in she basically says yeah do you hunt oh yeah 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 i'm big hunter i love to hunt love to hunt i really love the turkey hunt and she goes really and um 
he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, she says, well, my, my husband does a lot of Turkey research. And, and she said, he shot his head around and said, what's your name? And she was like, well, our last name's Chamberlain. And he goes, was that Mike Chamberlain that just left here? And she was like, yeah, he shot one of my birds a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so she calls me and she was like, I'm driving, you know, I'm 30 minutes away or whatever. She calls me and she goes, Hey, so do you remember, I'm not going to say this young man's name, but do you remember this, this person? I said, yes, I do recall that, that name. And well, that's our electrician that's working on our house right now. And he shot one of your birds a few years ago. And I said, yeah, I do remember that. And had a GPS unit on it. And he reached out to me, I believe either on social media. And anyway, he ended up getting my cell number and texted me. So it's just a small world, you know, yeah. here, here this guy comes into my house and doesn't know who I am, which is great. Um, and it strikes up a conversation with my wife and, and there's one of the guys that smoked one of my GPS Mark Toms <laughs> and, and had no idea he did it, but he was super pumped that he, he, you know, had shot a, a band of Turkey. So I, I, it was just a funny story that, that is funny. she literally called me and said, Hey, yeah, this guy just shot, he shot one of your birds a few years ago. I was like, okay, cool. Small so, world. Yeah. I hope you were nice yeah. to him. You know, yeah. <laughs> maybe he'll wire your house correctly. <laughs> well, he's, he's actually fixing, don't, again, don't get me started, Bobby. He's actually fixing crap that the previous contractor, and if you're the previous contractor, I hope you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, he's fixing crap that your subs, you know, didn't do correctly. And, and uh, unfortunately now I'm paying for the same thing twice, but that, that's neither here nor there. Anybody but. else need to vent about anything at home? <laughs> yeah. Or at it? Yeah. I'm not going to touch that one. Yeah. yeah. Turkey uh, season. Are you kidding? Up. Before turkey yeah. season, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. I, Mike, I think we're fixing to lose Toxie. And we got a few more minutes of this. So you probably wanted to say goodbye to him, Toxie. I do, but I'll see you soon, brother Mike. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. We, what's it? We're, we're two weeks out now, huh? Yeah, the two weeks. Something like two that. Two weeks about today. Day. Yeah, today yeah, would two. be. The, that's right. When this two airs, it'll today. be a week. Yeah, so I'll I'll see you in Nashville and and I'm looking forward to it. It's oh. it's always a a fun time. It's whew, it's super busy, but it's always fun. It's the it's best, like a homecoming. That's it's right. the best energy of any time of year in our history, at this place at least. Yeah, this time of year, especially that event, it's just like the rebirth season and celebration of it. It's mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I look forward to it. As they say, let's roll. Yeah, see you. Yeah, so Mike, look, we've uh, we've gone on for a while. We we've got a chance. Uh, you know, you uh, you created a trivia question for Bronson last time he was here. So uh, and I understand he was fussy about it too. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and, and he. <laughs> He wanted to have Obliged? an opportunity yeah. to come back to you oh, with a trivia oh, question. Nice. So, uh, okay, let me hold on. Let me open a browser. Here. <laughs> Google up. <laughs> Google up. Uh, so, uh, we've got a sponsor of our trivia questions at uh, Sheffield Financial, and we're so proud to have them. Richie, have you got something teed up there, there to get is. this started? Have you talked to them about trivia? Is brought to you by Sheffield Financial. Fuel your GameKeeper projects with financing for power sports, outdoor power equipment, and trailers. Begin your next conservation adventure at SheffieldFinancial.com. Today's yeah, so trivia. Yeah, Sheffield will be at, they'll have a booth at the NWT. You and Dudley show. are going to make an appearance there, and, aren't and you? I, well, I hope you will as well. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, so yeah, yeah we'll, be, we'll hopefully be there. There's some great folks, Mike. If you well, uh, how's the wedding financing going? Have you had a conversation with them about? Uh, you this? know, I'm hoping to do that at the end. Oh, you're gonna drop show. the bomb yeah, on them there. Yeah, yeah. Nice. A- ask them, do they find? Y'all bring your Venmo money for Bobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mike, if you hadn't heard, I got a wedding coming up in the future. I have heard. That, uh, I have heard that uh, we're really yep. excited about. So. Yeah, we are. Uh, you're not excited about the financial side of it. You're excited. You're excited for the the event. Yeah, it's an investment yeah, that, in that, love. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, it is an investment in love, Dudley. Look that's at you. Right. So, so uh, Bronson, uh, I, I'm thinking he's trying to shake you up here, Mike. So, and, and for folks that don't know, these two used to work together yep. a long time buddies and they go back a long way so i think we've suddenly got in the middle of maybe some eras that might be mm. oh, getting shot like both it. ways so yeah bronson and i are good friends and i uh i will say this in this i'm being completely transparent i have a tremendous amount of respect for him he not just as a as a scientist but just he's and you know this he's just a good person yeah. he's just a he's he just a solid man he you know, so when you when when you reached out and asked me for a trivia question, I I it was a double edged sword. I was like, I I might be able to stump him, but I really don't want to, you know, because I, I love Bronson to death. But all right, fire away. And if he get if he gets me and I don't know it, I'm I'm totally cool with it. <laughs> coming coming from him, I'm totally cool with it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna turn it over to Matt. All right, Dr. Mike, you were playing for Just Eve OH, uh, who left us a review. And the prize this week will be a bag of our spring protein peas. Oh, nice. So, two them in the ground for the spring. Uh, the, uh, you know, protein peas are what the Ashley Buck loves so much. That's that right. grew so big. And, and I know it's turkey season, but now, you know, just like we're talking about planning, Mike's talking about planning long term plans and working these plants. It's time to start planning for deer season, too. And could Just Eve Ohio be a lady? It could be just Eve OH like Oak Hill too. I mean, there's oh. plenty of options. Yeah. Got a local yokel on here. Well, I'd like to think we're we've got a lady listener here, is what I'm gonna kind of go with. So all right, go ahead. All right, Dr. Mike. The question is, what is the Latin name for big horn sheep? <laughs> that's a I wonder how many times that I mean, how many times has that come out of your mouth, Mike? Uh, like never. Yeah. I uh, I don't know why I I don't. So would the genus be Ovis? Um, yes. Yes. He yeah, got the genus would be Ovis. Uh, big horn horn. Uh, I can't. I don't know that. I don't know the species name. You know the I, fact and, that and, the fact that you got Ovis. It, it, well, I, well, I want to know what y'all's guess would be. Based on, I'm not Latin. I don't know the answer, but I would say probably like Montana, Montana. You know, just because it's there from the mountains or something. I was know. thinking it was more like something like Canadensis or something. Oh like yeah, well, I was, yeah, I yeah. To, I wanted to say that it started with a C, but I don't know why I I even think that. Um, what does Ovis mean? It has something uh, to do with maybe the, no, I don't know. I think it's just sheep. Like, hmm. yeah, I'll Google it. And tell you. So actually, this wasn't the real question. We were, <laughs> we were hoping Mike would go. Oh my God, I can't believe he asked me that. Well, that's what we were hoping. So 
but he basically got it, yeah. and then Lanny Googled it. Yeah, I did. One hundred percent Google. Was it Canadensis? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so now I don't let's speak Latin, but I speak Google. So yeah. now let's go to the real question. All right. So. All right, Dr. Mike. So this is a true false. Still on the same subject of bighorn sheep. Bobby's okay. dreaming about bighorn sheep. Obviously I think. so. Yeah. Uh, so bighorn sheep can deliberately rub the tips of their horns off on rocks. So the animal's peripheral vision is not impaired. True or false? False. Mm, boy, he was quick to say that. So from what I read on Edgescapes, that uh, that that uh, that is a thing that they are known to do. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'd say false just because it sounded too sounded too made up. I had to go with my gut. <laughs> well, I thought well, Bronson wrote this, not you. No, I actually. <laughs> I started to throw Bronson under the. <laughs> so you've got a redemption here, Doctor Mike. Uh, since now that we know that is true, per Bobby, what is this process called? God. Oh my God! Golly, y'all coming with the thunder? Is it like? Man, a, can we talk about white tails or something? Trivia yeah. question. I'm gonna light somebody. <laughs> um, huh? Well, it's Gosh. it's a thing, and a lot of times sheep hunters are you know trying to find one with Brooming? a full, full curl. curl. That's it, brooming. Boom! Yeah. He nailed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he got, there we go. Yeah, yeah. And all, what made me think that is just. Uh, I don't, I don't sheep hunt, which I may be a good thing, but, or a bad <laughs> thing, but I have hunted in, in Africa a, a number of times. And, you know, a lot of the outfitters will talk about, you know, whether it's a kudu or what, whatever it is that, you know, they want to try to get them before they start brooming off, um, meaning getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So hmm. yeah, it makes sense. That is interesting, though that they yeah that they intentionally do that. They can that, that, intentionally. They can. Do that's it. that's interesting because, um, I would not have thought that that would be a deliberate behavior. But hmm, yeah, interesting. Okay. So edu- edgescapes is a dot com is where I, I, is where I found that edgescapes. Yeah. yeah. Do they have very good eyesight? Is that a peer review? I, I, I think website. they have fantastic eyesight. I would think they'd have to have fantastic eyesight. Yeah. yeah. I would think they would. So yeah. I don't know that so. that's peer reviewed information, Mike, but it was on the internet. So, oh, so it's got to be true. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we went, we went, so. Did you go on chat GPT to get that question? <laughs> oh, gosh. No, but, but look, right now, uh, I'm not looking at my phone. So, and I, the video has frozen of, of you three. So I can only. St- I'm seeing what you look like five minutes ago, but I just got a text from one of you saying brooming. Somebody, <laughs> somebody is, is, I guess that's Laney. Somebody's trying to help me out, but I now I got it. Man. Yeah. Well, now we Go just, we just learned a little something about Mac there. That we hey, man, what? Hey, yeah. Mac's, a, Mac's a team player, buddy. Ride yeah, or yeah. die. Thanks Mac. Ride or yeah. die. So what did we learn today? I, it goes back to me, you know, jumping in here. I did a lot of listening today, but it is, you know, making a plan on your individual property, realizing this is a long-term game. I mean, you know, you might be worried about this spring right now, but you really need to be worried about what the next springs look like. So, um, you know, do what you can. Uh, what is it? Work your plan, plan your work and work your plan uh, and, and, and keep focused on the long-term 
uh, you know, effect that you can have on this amazing bird. Deadly. Yeah. Just like the bumper sticker says, make your own luck. Yeah. Um, you know, most of us, I, I would say on average, you know, most, you know, if we've got a chunk of private to hunt, it's not going to be huge. And and the neighbor is probably going to be a turkey hunter as well. No uh, doubt. Here. Work together with your neighbors um, and try to cover all the holes in the bucket. You know, not don't just focus on one. Mac, do you learn anything? Now that we're talking about turkeys, I'm going to have a lot of sleepless nights from now yeah, until March right. 15th. I've already got on X up. You know, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike, I tell you, we always enjoy having you. I, I'm going back to early in the conversation we were talking about deer. I'm still just, I'm still kind of in that mode right now. Yes, you are. Uh, we still got a few more. Actually, we can hunt to the 10th of February. And I know Alabama, you can. So, yeah. uh, I've got an older deer that I'm kind of watching, and I have noticed it looks like he has lost 40 pounds since the last time I saw him. It, wow. I, and so that's why I specifically ask you how much weight are you seeing deer lose? Because I would, I really would say he's there's a, a significant difference when we're looking at it this morning. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So anyway, I just, well, I, I hope you get him. I love the, the thought of, I mean, just the biology of what all these deer go through during that rut, how much they, weight they lose. They're just not eating because they just so focused on reproduction. It's just amazes me. Yeah. They're, they're, they're fascinating creatures. That's that's for sure. No doubt. All right. Well, everybody come see us at the NWTF. Mike, yeah. please come hang out in the booth a little bit. We'd love to see you. You know I will. You know I will, for sure. Yeah. Is your wife coming? No. She she said she did her one and only convention last year for a while. So, um, so no, she's it's. I'll, I'll be alone this year, and it's uh, actually going to be a crazy week i, I have to oh, go to gosh. arkansas yeah, before the convention so. to speak and then i have to leave the convention and go to another speaking engagement the day after so it's it's going to be a lot but i'm i'm looking forward to it like we talked about it's such a it's such a fun time there one one year many years ago lanny my wife went you know yeah and she wanted to go she walked around about an hour and came back and she said after listening to all these people chirping on calls she said now i know why everybody wants to shoot a turkey <laughs> <laughs> just listen to all that annoying calling so well so this has been a lot of fun uh we we, we uh we look forward to, to the spring it is here and thankfully it's here mike good luck with all you're doing uh yeah be safe on the road keep up the good yeah, work absolutely yep same to y'all guys i appreciate it i love i love joining you and appreciate appreciate uh having a having a voice to put information out there for people to listen to yeah sir well we feel the same way and we're gonna do this again and uh i'm, I'm sure there's more to talk about so well we're gonna let you go and why don't you say goodbye dudley Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.